I'm, hold on just a second. Let me turn on my headphones. Okay. Uh, I'm in Toronto. Do, do, do. In a walk-in closet. Can you hear me? Brandon? Brandon? Hello, Brandon? Yeah, huh? Oh, okay. So when I when I turn on my remote headphones, it's for some reason it turns off the phone. So you can't hear me. So we're going to have to do it like this and just try not to overlap because I can only do this on speakerphone. Okay, it's your speaker. Yeah. I will try. Okay. <laughs> you ready? Yep. Are you sure? I am ready. Okay. okay. I don't want to hear any crap from you. You say you're ready and then you're not. <laughs> okay. Welcome to The Well. I am Brandon Edgens. And I'm Anson Mount. And this is one of our installments of The Drop. Anson, explain The Drop. Well, The Drop is a segment that we're doing uh, between seasons of our normal episodes as a way to just keep in touch with our audience and let you know everything that we've been listening to, watching, experiencing, uh, to give you ideas for things to do during the pandemic or just in general. The idea originally it was that these would be a lot easier to produce and we could do them more often. But you and, I, you and I have gotten busy, and it has pushed the third season of what I guess we'll call, you know, fully produced segments of The Well, you know, ahead a little bit. And you and I talked about that. And I don't know if we want to go on the record here about when we think those might be <laughs> coming up again, when we can actually publish some produced episodes. But uh, what, what, what did you say last time we had this discussion? Because I forgot. I said that we just should probably just set a date to be ready to go by. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's that's going to be easy to meet with our hectic schedules right now. My shooting and your work and um, yeah, yeah. So uh, I was thinking maybe around June first, maybe to have some episodes in the can ready to go. That was our meeting. I hope someone kept minutes, and that it and that concludes the, our quarterly meeting, uh, production meeting for the well. Uh, and now on with the show. Um, you are, where are you? I know where you are, but tell the people. I'm in Toronto. Uh, I'm in a walk-in closet in the house that we're renting while we're here. And, uh, we're in the middle of pre-production for, uh, the first season of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, uh, which is, it's a lot of, uh, camera tests and, um, you know, technical stuff that we got to get ready for because everything on Star Trek we build from scratch. So it's sort of endless fittings and meetings with props and, um, and you know, a lot of other stuff I can't talk about right now. But it's exciting to be getting back to work. Of course, it would be exciting to go to the dentist at this point. But You've been in quarantine there for a while. Uh, we, uh, we had to – there's still a mandatory two-week quarantine when you cross the Canadian border here. So – but that wasn't – too bad my wife and i are we're homebodies anyway and we brought the three dogs with us and uh just uh watched a lot of movies and taught my wife how to play chess and uh we got through it oh wait was this uh sudden interest in chess due to 
perhaps one of your recommendations? Or did you already recommend it on the last one? I don't remember. Well, I wasn't necessarily going to bring that one up, but since you mentioned it, yeah, we, we watched uh, Queen's Gambit on Netflix. We enjoyed it very much. Genius and madness. There's no player in the world as gifted as you are. There is one player that scares me. Who? The Russian. And it sparked an interest in chess, or re-sparked an interest in chess that Dara has always had. She, nobody had ever taught her how to play. And one thing that I thought that the, that miniseries did really, really well is it, it told a great human story that revolved around the game of chess without getting bogged down into the technicality of the game, especially on that level, because on that level, yeah. it's just impossible to follow what these... I mean, these grandmasters, they're, you know... They're looking at every iteration of every move of your, 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 you and your opponent, possibly seven moves out. You know, I, these people are geniuses. <laughs> and uh, the show really could not have cut uh, up with that. I'm not sure what, how, if the book went there, uh, but I, I'm pretty sure I heard somewhere, this may be apocryphal, but I heard that Gary Kasparov was a, was a consultant on this. Yes. Yes, he was. Hmm. Yeah, um, and I yeah I, th- that actress. You did you by the way? Did you recognize that actress? Oh yes, I mean I was I'm a huge fan of The Witch by Robert Eggers, and where she played a Puritan colonist. And The Witch is a fantastic movie. I loved it. She was great in it. So I've been kind of I wouldn't say following her, but I've been I'm always she always I'll kind of follow her wherever she goes. I'll put it that way. Not in that creepy stalker sense. <laughs> <laughs> I said that completely wrong, <laughs> but she has a, um, she just has the most captivating face. You just, I mean, the camera just falls in love with her eyes. She has these amazing eyes, which are, which were fantastic in Queen's Gambit because so much of the, st- so much of the drama is internal, you know, especially like in a, in a game like chess, where you just have two people sitting at a table, you need something compelling, you know, to to really make a focus visually, and her eyes are great. They, they you can see the whole you can literally see the entire game reflected in her eyeballs. She's great. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Um, but the the thing that I, I really wanted to get to my sort of my A game on this one is uh, I wanted to recommend this documentary that Dara and I saw recently while we were in quarantine that I had heard about called The Dissident. My name is Hatice Cengiz. I am addressing you as a victim. A title forced on me after the brutal murder of my Jamal. Jamal Khashoggi, prominent Saudi journalist and Washington Post columnist, has gone missing after visiting his country's consulate in Istanbul. He was last seen entering Saudi Arabia's consulate seeking paperwork to marry his fiancée. His fiancée saw him go in at 1 p.m. and was still waiting for him at 1 a.m. Uh, and this is Brian Fogel's, uh, and Brian Fogel, by the way, is a documentarian who won the Academy Award for Icarus a couple of years back. If you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. It's about the Ro- Russian Olympic doping scandal, and he kind of gets caught up in the story. But so he went and he decided to make a, a documentary about what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi Arabian Washington Post journalist who was murdered in the Saudi Arabian embassy in Turkey uh, because of 
his opposition to the current regime in Saudi Arabia. And uh, it is, it's an excellent movie. Uh, I was shocked. Well, maybe not shocked, kind of not surprised, but still disappointed to find out that he could not get distribution for this film. Every American distribution company, uh, major distribution company and network, they all passed on this movie. They all went to the screeners. They all went to the festivals. They all loved it. And they're all deathly afraid of losing Saudi Arabian support, whether it be in investment dollars or in those regions. And so he decided to uh, distribute it independently. It was 20 bucks to rent. I did it gladly because I really want to support this film. And you know what? It was worth it. I would have absolutely paid to see this in the theater, which would, cost, would have cost the same thing. This was an extremely well-made documentary. Uh, and it's about something real and frightening that's happening right now. Did you get a chance to see it? No, I have not seen it yet. Um, I will, but I have to say with a, you know, warning that I'm going to go into something a little political here. I understand, uh, people not wanting to touch it, the distributors, et cetera, but it's just pathetic to watch though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I hear the reasons. I understand the reasons, but those are pathetic reasons. And it reminds me of like when this thing, initially happened you'll remember the president didn't not only said nothing about it his only comment was something along the lines of well saudi arabia is buying three billion dollars worth of our equipment yeah that was the dismissal of a and he and uh uh Khashoggi had a, a american he was an american was he a dual citizenship american citizen what was he no he had he uh he came to Washington uh, at a certain point, and he got asylum and began okay. working for the Post while he was living in Washington. Okay. But still, that was remarkable. The, the, the silence from our leadership at that moment was deafening. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Ooh. Well, anything else? <laughs> no, why don't you? You got anything? What do you got? <laughs> you got something funny? Um, uh, yeah, I got a bunch of stuff. Uh, I have a little menu here. You know, I've just been recently watching this thing on Netflix. It's a series of shorts called Homemade. And it's like 17 episodes. They're all about eight minutes or so. And they're just filmmakers stuck at home making a movie kind of sometimes completely by themselves. And what's great about it is that they're so short. You're not really investing a lot of time. Uh, and you're just, but you're watching how people in lockdown are behaving and how they're experiencing lockdown all over the world because this is like a, an international uh, sort of film festival, really. Uh, one of the standouts is one by Paolo Sarantino. He made it with two little like eight-inch figurines of Pope Francis and Queen Elizabeth having an illicit romance, and he just sort of <laughs> posed them. He sort of poses them around his apartment, and he just sort of has actors do the voices <laughs> for both of them. <laughs> and you just, it was wonderful. It's like, okay, you got nothing but your iPhone and 
for some reason, these two figurines, which I don't know if he had them before or not. I, I, I like to tell myself he already had them and he was bored and looking up on his bookshelf and saw them and thought, well, can I make a movie with these? It's just this. And he does. There's also one uh, about a man in a nursing home confessing his love uh, to a long lost lover. Uh, that one is, I won't give it away. It's fantastic. Uh, Sebastian Schipper, German, does a great one about living with yourself, and that one was just him all by himself. Uh, and Sebastian Lilio makes a, a little more ambitious, made a musical uh, about being trapped in a house. So there's a lot of this woman singing and dancing and doing a lot of cleaning. Again, it's such a short investment of time. I, I recommend it. Put on Netflix's homemade, you know, eight minute investment, and you get to kind of you know, time jump and around the globe and see how people are dealing with being shut inside. And then another one, which I meant to mention last time, I can't, I don't think it's on Netflix, actually. A sound of The Sound of Metal. Oh. Have you seen this? No, but I, I've been very much wanting to see this. It looks interesting. Your hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou, no. let's play them all and see what it's like, okay? I'm gonna be like a click track. You can play to me. You have to understand your first responsibility is to preserve the hearing you have. I can't hear you. Do you understand me? I can't. I'm deaf. I'm deaf. Riz Ahmed is such a it's such a good performance he's incredible and someone else made this point that it's like a live action version of Pixar's soul it's you know what happens when the the thing that you have decided is your identity right as an artist it's you know your art and you make that your identity and it's suddenly just taken away from you like who are you now how do you define yourself what's your relationship to the world from that point on and it's it'd be an interesting double feature First of all, Soul is fantastic. And so that's like the children's version of the story, but a, a grittier, more adult version would be uh, Sound of Metal. It's about a uh, sort of heavy metal drummer who very suddenly and inexplicably goes deaf, not really because of the music, but he just has a... I can't remember if it's explained in the movie why he goes deaf, but Riz Ahmed in, is... Who was in um, The Night Of, right? Uh, he's fantastic. He's such a good actor. Um, so I highly recommend Sound of Metal. What else you got? Um, it, well, we just started watching this documentary series on HBO Max that was produced by the Duplass brothers, who I'm huge fans of. They're fellow Southerners. They're from New Orleans. And they're both actors, both filmmakers, really interesting, intelligent guys. And they put out this documentary series called The Lady and the Dale. Henry Ford said, you catch things on the, the rising tide, you're doomed to success. She wanted to be known as a trailblazer. As any good criminal, she was thinking several moves ahead. America in the early 70s, anybody could be anything they wanted to be. I've got a mother of five who's invented the car. Is she famous? No, but she's going to be. I'm going to knock the Detroit. She thought that she would be the next Henry Ford. And it is this largely unknown story about this career 
criminal uh, who was, for most of his life, was on the run from the FBI with his family. And then, uh, not really, you know, he was, he was, what's interesting about it is that he was constantly changing his identity and his wife's identity, his children's identity to move around and stay aloof. And that, as, and then at a certain point, he realized that he was a woman living in a man's body. That's not entirely what this um, series is about. That is part of the character study. Um <laughs> No, I'm, I'm laughing because normally that would be the whole thing, this right? Is, but the way they the, fa- the fact that this is a sidebar tells you this is a big story, right? But the way that they handled it was very so well done. Well, I think it was well done um, because they didn't uh, they didn't use that as just a a kind of a, a quirky one off. Of an episode, they didn't use it as a as a way of look how else this guy tried to change his identity. He, they you they they really looked at it in terms of of uh, something that helped to further reveal who this person was and really separate that from from the rest of his um, his attempts to 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 change himself for other reasons. The gist of the movie, though, is about how this now woman decided to try to take on the auto industry. This this took place in largely in the early to mid 1970s when we were in a real oil crisis. And a lot of people believe that the time for a f- more fuelish efficient lighter car had come about. And through some of his work in business development, he'd come across this invention where a guy had taken a motorcycle engine, added a third wheel up front, put a top over it and called it a car. And she took this idea on and just decided to create a, a car company, but then kind of in an attempt to recreate herself fully as a real businesswoman, had trouble leaving behind the ways of a fraudster. <laughs> and, and where those two things meet <laughs> is really often hard to discern. <laughs> You know, like what's good business and what's good fraud is so hard to discern. And we're right in the middle of it. So I can't, obviously, I can't give you away the ending because I don't know it. Um, and this is sort of a half review because, because I haven't seen the rest of it yet. Um, but it's, it is so well done. It's got a lot of interesting collage animation in it to carry you along. And, uh, it's very, very well paced, well researched. Um, yeah, I highly recommend it. The Lady and the Dale on HBO Max. I wanted to give a little mention to uh, a, 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 yet another streaming service, uh, Curiosity Stream. It's, it's all nonfiction. It's all you know history and science-based programming. And at less than $20 a year, it is one of the cheapest subscriptions out there. And a lot of the programming is translated programs from Europe, mostly. And that's why it's pretty cheap, actually, because they're not... You don't have to produce this stuff again, and uh, and also a lot of that stuff is produced uh, with you know in Europe with public funds. It's just it's a really impressive library for anyone with a curious mind. It's smart, it's cheap. I recommend it, and for anyone who already has the Criterion streaming service, 
Uh, I highly recommend the Afrofuturism collection that they have up right now. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised how much I love it. The more you think about it, the heavier a topic it becomes. It's, you know, for example, like one of the movies that's programmed is one called The Last Angel of History by John Acumfra. It's kind of a documentary, but it's kind of staged as a sci-fi thing where, you know, a African-American man from the future uh, travels back. He's called the data thief and he goes back and he's trying to piece together his own history based on what's available digitally and having to kind of deal with the way, uh, you know, African-American identity has been represented throughout the digital archive. And if you were to go through and excavate, you get really distorted, uh, not just distorted histories, but, a lot of gaps. I mean, mostly gaps. So it's this fictional character trying to like put together his past so he can imagine his future. And that seems to be a theme that runs through most of um, uh, the Afrofuturism stuff on, on this Criterion collection. It's mostly, you know, African-Americans imagining a future because they're present and their, especially their past has been stolen. Uh, or erased so and it's not a genre that gets much attention so it made it especially fascinating viewing to watch yeah as, as somebody as, as someone else pointed out in this documentary all that stuff that we talk about in sci-fi you know when white people talk about it it's really yeah it's totally sci-fi it's all imaginary but it's already happened to african-americans greg tate is the writer who argued that black people uh, in America certainly lived the estrangement that uh, science fiction writers kind of uh, talk about. All the stories about alien abduction, all the stories about alien spaceships taking subjects from one planet and taking them to another, genetically transforming them. All those things that you read about alien abduction and genetic transformation, they already happened. How much more alien do you think it gets than slavery, than these, than entire mass populations moved and genetically altered, entire status moved, uh, forcibly dematerialized. It doesn't really get much more alien than that. You know, all that stuff that we think of as, oh, totally hypothetical. Like, no, they've, they, this is a grounded experience. They actually have something to say on this subject. It's a really, really interesting approach to science fiction I, I and I feel kind of stupid for never having thought of it or considered it until I ran into this collection on uh, Criterion it's 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 great uh, I, I especially recommend uh, Space is the Place it's a very strange sort of black exploitation sci-fi featuring Sun Ra the jazz composer the most prolific jazz composer of the 20th century and it's just so weird and funny and bonkers well, you better tell me about this nothing stuff because uh, I need a job. I don't, I don't know what to do. What have you been doing lately? Uh, 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 nothing, really, nothing. How long have you been doing nothing? <laughs> Quite some time. Quite some time. You must be an expert at it. Got my BA. <laughs> we'll hire you to do that. How much I get paid, man? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing? I got to have something so I can get me another bottle. I can't go for that shit. That sounds really, that sounds really cool. I got to check that out. Um, I'm going to drag us back over to Netflix for a second because 
have to ask you, have you watched The White Tiger yet? That was on my list. <laughs> <laughs> Great minds think alike. For once. When I first saw him, I knew then this was the master for me. I want to be a driver for your son. Hey, how much rope? Hey, don't do that. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, the reason that we watched it is because I uh, listened to an interview recently on one of my favorite uh, industry podcasts called KCRW's The Business. Uh, mm-hmm. And Kim Masters, who's an uh, industry critic, interviewed the filmmaker and the author of the book, both of whose names, I'm sorry, I don't have it on hand right now, but they're old school chums. And... Um, it was a wonderful interview, and and she also mentioned during this interview that Netflix, uh, apparently, this movie is number one on Netflix in forty different countries. Wow! So that <laughs> that kind of hints at how good a core story is here, and it is highlighted by a central performance by this young actor I've never seen before named Adarsh Gurav, and he is absolutely pitch perfect in this movie. Uh, if you watch it for no other reason, watch it for this central performance. It's really, really great, and a, and a compelling film. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with all that, especially the lead performer, uh, Ram... Uh, no, actually, I don't have his name here. He, What he does in that, it's hard for an actor to do, which is to... His characters, I mean, this, to some extent, the story is about the caste system in uh, in India. And he's playing someone who, how do I put this? Who is very accustomed to acting, right? Yeah. Uh, someone who is pretending to be someone with these ambitions that are way outside of his caste system. But he knows his role. He knows how to, he knows how to pretend and that is a it was a remarkable thing to watch that actor do to watch him um sort of play the subjugated servant and still somehow be able to see the smart ambitious real person underneath how he and he was and he's clearly acting like I know I know how to play this role. I've been playing it my whole life, but he somehow makes you aware that he's pretending without with you know what I mean without obviously signaling it. He seems he seems genuine somehow, and you also know once you once you see the prior scene, you know his motivations. You know that this is not who this guy is, but damn, he's convincing. <laughs> he is great. Yeah, really, really wonderful. I'm I'm very excited to to keep watching uh, his career move forward, which it clearly is going to. And I'd also like to point because I just watched the trailer for it like just an hour ago. Uh, please go watch White Tiger on Netflix. Please do not watch the trailer for White Tiger on Netflix. It gives the whole story away. I hate it. And and they did, and it's the story is so well told, and the it it just it just, it would just ruin the experience. It just just trust us and put it on. <laughs> Don't watch the trailer. <laughs> it's good. It's very good. 
Um, I uh, what what else? You got anything else? Getting away from movies. In a weird way, this ended up tying back into the Afrofuturism thing. But I, for some reason, I I've always known about Kraftwerk, the German industrial electronica techno band. I took a deep dive into Kraftwerk, and I didn't realize how long they'd been around. They formed in 1970. This is back when producing music electronically was really difficult. I mean, you, you had to be sort of an electrical engineer to know how to, to even know where to begin. And they invented a lot of that technology. And there's really not much evolution since then. Uh, it's kind of a, a grandiose statement, but all techno starts with them. Uh, all electro pop music kind of starts with them. And they started Krautrock, and or they were part of Krautrock, I should say. But you know, like them, along with like Tangerine Dream, you know these, you know these these German. There's always they're always not always German, but seem to be focused in Germany. Uh, people really exploring how technology could produce music, and then also what it meant philosophically. And Kraftwerk took it to immediately took it to a an extreme where I think by 1980 or 85, they kind of stopped appearing live and instead sent robots to do their shows. And it's hysterical. And you would go see like a whole like, and they would have weird venues, you know, like a uh, uh, an indoor bicycle race. What's it called? Uh, uh, sort of a hippodrome kind of a thing. And, they, and there's all these screaming fans there. But on the stage are four robots, quote, performing the music. They're one of those seed bands that you don't, if you don't know of them, you're very familiar with all the branches and leaves that they spawned. Uh, so much of what we think of as electronic pop music, it all started with them. And it's kind of cool to go back and hear still how original and prescient all those ideas were. You know, kind of, they kind of came out of the box, kind of weirdly fully formed in like the early 70s. But the connection to Afrofuturism was in this one of the documentaries I was watching about Kraftwerk. Uh, this guy who said, you know, like anyone who was interested in future possibilities loved Kraftwerk. You know who loved Kraftwerk back in the late seventies? Uh, George Clinton. Oh, of course. <laughs> and of course, George Clinton would be into it. He was such a freaky, weird human being who wasn't really on this planet anyway, and. He heard all this beep bop boop weird electronic music and thought, man, that is out of sight. <laughs> he loved Kraftwerk. But it kind of 
it put me in this weird headspace where I'm like, well, of course, you know, again, like the, the weird cross-pollinization that happens in the world where, you know, these German musicians who are coming from a completely different place uh, artistically and creatively, uh, you know, really excited this African-American musician who was sort of singularly obsessed with uh, completely inventing a new identity for himself that was sort of based in a possible future. And he heard the future in that. And yeah, we have craft work to thank for all that. So thank you, weird guys who have never given an interview in 40 years. Are you reading anything? Yeah, well... um you know, I, actually, not too much. Uh, so, uh, although no, that's not true. I've been I've been reading a good bit, but but it's been more for work. Uh, so, uh, I did want to I did want to come up with um, a reading recommendation this time because we're sort of with this whole COVID thing. We're you know we're in a new year, but we're still <laughs> we still got the the binoculars on because. It's still, we're still going to be here for a while. And I think after a year of looking out at this thing and thinking, oh, God, when is this going to end? What are the numbers? What are the numbers? What's going on? What is Dr. Fauci saying? Eventually, that nobody can keep up with that, and you're going to end up being inside and looking inward a little bit or a lot. And so I... I I could not think of a better recommendation right now. And of all the books that I've bought for other people or lent to other people, this is right up there in the top three. One of the most important books that I've ever read for my own development. Um, In fact, I'll give you a quick little story to introduce it. I was uh, in my first year of graduate school, Right at that time when you start questioning not just your craft, but your talent and ultimately your place in the world, your place in the universe, your relationship to yourself and other people. And uh, Andre Gregory, who's a very famous theater director and actor, uh, was teaching us that semester, and I, I kind of came to him with this question, like, what do I do in this space? And he said, I can only tell you two things. Number one, I'm glad I'm not you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that made you feel better. And then he said, number two, read Letters to a Young Poet by Mar- Rene, uh, sorry, I already screwed up his name. Rainer Maria Rilke is a French poet from, ah, gosh, I think the 19th century, late 19th century. Um, and what it is, is uh, these letters of Rilke's were discovered long after his death. And they were, he, apparently he had been back at his boarding school. And a a kid, probably 16 or 17, who wanted to be a poet and was in a quandary about life himself had come up to Rilke and Rilke had very generously given him his mailing address. And this kid had clearly started writing to him with life questions. 
And the guy who found these letters didn't obviously didn't have the kid's letters, but you can kind of glean what was in the letters by reading Rilke's responses. And these are long, extremely well thought out, basically essays, philosophy of life by a man who is at the height of his fame and at the height of the world's demand on his attention, taking his time to help answer the life questions of this kid he had barely met. So the whole thing is infused with this kind of generosity and familial love for somebody who's going through something that he had already been through. And the central tenet of this book, I have to say, if I could put it in a nutshell, is those questions, <laughs> the big questions, life is not a process of answering any of those questions because you're still going to be asking them. If they're good questions, you're going to be asking them your whole life. What changes is your relationship to the question and finding your growth as a human through that relationship. Um, it changed my entire outlook when I was in my early 20s when I read this book, and it got me through a very rough time. And it's just... And it's not for you, just for young people because we all still have those questions. So I'd highly recommend if you're looking for a bit of uplifting philosophy uh, and something to just make you feel jazzed about not knowing, <laughs> you know, and giving up the angst of not knowing and instead finding joy in the not knowing. Uh, I really recommend that you get a copy of Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria Rilke. And the last name is spelled R-I-L-K-E. I will definitely check that out. Even though I already know everything, I'll still read it. Check it out. <laughs> what else you got? That's it. Oh, okay. Well, in terms of, I did this last time. Uh, we ended with a reading, and that seemed to go pretty well. So if you don't mind, I think I'll do a reading from, uh, I recommended Harper's last time. I'm still recommending Harper's. Uh, and last time, if you'll remember, it was about uh, a report about the police <laughs> worst responders invading invading a house and destroying it, and like and, and the damage they did was phenomenal. And it was to stop a homeless guy who broke a window and stole a tomato. <laughs> yeah, and they like destroyed the entire house and the, and the yard. And brought in like the three helicopters. It was insane. So this one, it's one of these sidebars from Harper's Magazine. Uh, okay. From a letter by Thomas Brennan, a physics professor at Ferris State University, in response to allegations printed in the student newspaper, The Torch, the accusation that Brennan disrupted a faculty Zoom call and made offensive comments using a private Twitter account. Okay. So... The student newspaper reported this thing, and there was a big blowback, and this guy Thomas Brennan said, whoa, 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 you haven't heard my side of the story. So this is ostensibly his explanation 
for for these rumors? Okay. To the Ferris community, the controversy started after I made a few statements in a meeting to the effect that I believe the pandemic is a stunt designed to enslave humanity. The end result will be that no one will be permitted to buy food in a supermarket unless they present proof of vaccination. This electronic certificate will take the form of injectable micro or nanotechnology. It will be a fulfillment of the prophecy of the Mark of the Beast, as described in the book of Revelation. In order to distract people from that, the student newspaper published a series of articles implying that I'm racist, anti-Semitic, and a science denier. These are mind control spells. <laughs> I have a Twitter account that I use as a, quote, hole to shout in, end quote. I will sometimes say things that sound strange. Let me address a few of these tweets, starting with the one where I use the N-word. I am not a racist. Its implied meaning in the tweet was a synonym for a human being. <laughs> My casual use of the N-word in that tweet isn't the most controversial thing about it. It's that I'm calling out the huge scientific frauds, Bill Nye, Buzz Aldrin, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and Anthony Fauci are part of a system of lies. I also said, quote, atom bombs are fake, end quote. The footage of atomic bomb tests are just films of explosions of large piles of TNT made to look bigger through special effects. These techniques were used in the 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz. The films of the Apollo moon landing were faked using the same bag of tricks. The sunlit surface of the moon is over 700 degrees Fahrenheit, not 250 degrees Fahrenheit, as NASA claims. That is why the moon glows red during a lunar eclipse. Not because of the refracted light from Earth's atmosphere, as Bill Nye and Neil Tyson would have you believe. Now, I have to address the tweets I made about Jews. I do not believe that middle-class Jews are involved in an international conspiracy, only that a small number of their elites are. The, en the entire world has fallen under the spell of their satanic elite. Their end goal is a technocratic one-world government where everyone, Jew and Gentile, will be microchipped. Lord have mercy on us all. <laughs> oh my god that's that's his explanation <laughs> Boy, let's clear up some let's clear up a few things here all right when i said the n-word i meant person <laughs> the moon is red because it's very very hot <laughs> i'm like and, no, and remember go back and remember that this is a professor of physics at Ferris State University. What the hell? How does that happen? You know, there was, there was you know, Jack Hitt, who we once had on the show, wrote a great article called On Heaven As It Is in Earth for Harper's Magazine. I'm really stuck on, I'm really plugging Harper's, aren't I? And it was about a creationist uh, geology professor. And I want to say he was at one of the Ivy Leagues. Like, or at least he was, I think he was at Harvard or something, but he couldn't quite teach what he wanted to primarily that the earth is 6,000 years old, but he was teaching that at an Ivy league school until he left to become the head of a department at like 
you know, I can't remember what's the uh, like Trinity University or something like that. Um, and they're and just the way that once you've decided on something, you know, whether it's based on religion or what, you can twist absolutely anything to fit that belief. So, I mean, one of the examples I remember Jack pointing out in this article was this professor talking about the Great Flood, you know, 40 days and 40 nights, the Great Flood in the Bible. And But in order to make it sound a little more scientific, he didn't call it the Great Flood, he called it the Noatic Deluge, which somehow makes it sound, I don't know, like like you get like you're treating it scientifically. And so this the experiment that Jack watched them perform was them filling up this big 50-gallon aquarium or no, starting with a 50-gallon aquarium and putting a block of wood in it to represent the ark and then dumping, you know, 50 gallons of water into it. Guess what happened? It floated. Proving once and for all that wood floats. <laughs> But somehow, this proved the entire noatic deluge theory. See, the ark would float. Like, that's not really the argument. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone is taking taking the Bible to task that boats float. That is what they're designed to do. There's other problems with that story in terms of scientific validity. (laughs) So... I mean, okay, go ahead. But it, and it was interesting to watch him. Like this is a he's he went to an Ivy League school. He got his PhD. He uh, takes students out on field trips, but he sees something different. You know, he excavates and he finds dinosaur bones, and he says, "Ah, here we are at about mm, four thousand years back in the strata." You know, like no, that's well, it's, most people would say that was seventy-five million years ago, but. You're, you've decided to just shape off a couple of zeros and call that 4,000 years ago. It's weird, you know, but people's beliefs uh, are pretty powerful. And I think that's about all I have, although I do want to uh, give a little shout out right now. Friend of the show, we've had him on twice, and he wrote our theme music, Jonathan Myberg. Uh, his book, he's finally birthed his book that he has been working on for many, many years. I think it's available for pre-order right now. So search for A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey by Jonathan Myberg. It is out uh, soon. <laughs> pre-ordered now. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop. And you pre-order it absolutely anywhere. Uh, I have to... Oh, actually... I don't know if anyone remembers, but um, a couple of drops ago, I recommended a book by Greg Childs called Dialogues with the Animals. And it's the one where he has that harrowing encounter with a mountain lion. It's the scariest thing I've ever read. Yeah. Anyway, it's a great book. And he has something to say here in advance praise for Jonathan's book from Greg Childs. Quote, this book is an evolutionary labyrinth taking Myberg to the end of the world following a single curious predator. Vivid, beautiful, and scientifically rich. Crawling with jungle ants, blasted by arctic winds, 
His tales will transport you from the page to wilder places. Ah, Publishers Weekly writes, Myberg elevates himself to the top ranks of science writers with his enthralling debut. I'm looking forward to it. I really am so happy for Jonathan. He's been working on this book for so long while also maintaining a very busy music career. And by the way, it's not about music. <laughs> uh, and if you're, if you're interested in hearing more about Jonathan's study of the striated Caracara, you can go back to our first season and listen to our two episodes with him in which Brandon interviews him about his, his uh, ornithology. Uh, it's, there's really great episodes. Yeah, he's the only ornithologist rock star that I'm aware of. He's like the Buckaroo Banzai of of ornithologist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is something, this is a pretty clever segue, uh, since I'm reading Advanced Praise. This is something that my wife Sharon has been uh, telling me to do for the last several years, and I'm finally going to do it right here, right now, for the first time. Uh, read some of our comments. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I'll I'll just read one for now. All right, and then you can tell me tell me if you want to read another one. All right. Uh, from this is a recent one from Kelsey E. I hope I'm saying that right. Writes, I have really been enjoying this podcast over the last few months. I am late to the game and discovered it after also late to the game, finally watching Star Trek Discovery. Anson Mount's portrayal of Captain Pike was beautiful and led me down a rabbit hole to this podcast. Something about this podcast has been just what I needed after the dark hole that has been 2020. The way Brandon and Anson discuss life, tell stories, and interview guests captivates me. Through this podcast, I've realized just how important hearing about others' experiences and stories is to me, it makes me feel part of something beyond our ugly news cycle. So thank you, gentlemen, for helping me feel grounded and connected as I listen to your stories and interviews. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you so much. That means a lot. It's so nice. It's so nice. Just rather when I'm picking at random, Joe L. B. wrote, I just listened for the first time. I recommend it highly. It's not what I expected. It's not only entertaining, but spiritual and enlightening. I'm glad I subscribed, and we're glad you subscribed, too. Um, I'm not going to do that thing I normally do whenever I go to uh, any kind of uh, review aggregate and find the worst review, because some of them are funny. <laughs> um, and, and honestly, this, I feel like I'm making this up, but I'm not, unless I know how to, how do, we, how do you do this? I don't know how to sort I don't know how to sort this, but I, I swear, this sounds, it's almost embarrassing but i can't find any bad reviews i'm not making that up go to itunes and now what i just did right there was i invited a bunch of bad reviews so that <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> that's what i just did i'm sorry we have like a, a pretty remarkable five consistent five-star rating this are we paying these people <laughs> um it's 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 really wonderful you know and and i do and it does help put some wind in our sails, folks. It really does. So we love hearing from you, and we love it when you tell your friends. It really does help. Uh, but on the subject of bad uh, Google reviews, I'm just totally bouncing all over the place subject-wise. But we were up in British Columbia a couple of years ago, went to the Bouchard Gardens. Most amazing 
garden I've ever been to in my life. Incredible. Yeah, I, brought, I took my mother there one time. Really, really great place. It is fantastic. So we were on our way, and of course, it's all mostly five-star reviews, too, on Google, but there's a couple of one-star. I'm like, okay, what does someone have to say in a one-star review about the Bouchard Gardens? And you end up finding out more about the person than you do the thing that's being reviewed. And you scroll down, one-star review, one person writes, one-star, great if you love a bunch of repetitive walking and plants. (laughs) Like, what were you expecting? It's a garden. (laughs) <laughs> one person and another person complained they kicked me out because I was wearing Victorian costumes <laughs> so there's so they have to like be careful about people using it as a set you know like people coming in and like trying to film something you know because it's such a great it's such a beautiful backdrop and so they like we have a rule against people that are dressed in like period costumes because they assume that they're dare to shoot something commercial so this person's complaint was, I was just there. It was a regular day. I always dress in Victorian costume, and they threw me out. <laughs> hey, who knows? Maybe, maybe that person does. To- no, I think, I think he was being sincere. <laughs> but he also could have been a little more like that. Was one of the like one of the few one star reviews of Bouchard Gardens, like. I was wearing my top hat and coattails and Victorian garb, and I could not convince them that this is how I normally dress, and they made me leave. <laughs> but that, that's no diss in the Bouchard Gardens, people, if you ever get a chance. Like Anson said, it's, yeah, I didn't know a garden could really be that beautiful. It almost looked fake. Like, everywhere that you went, there's every leaf, every petal is perfect. It's like an Eden, like... Like, there is no disease. There is no, there's no blight. That The place has never seen blight or an aphid. <laughs> uh, all right. That's all I got. All right. I am depleted. Okay. All right. Good episode, I think. Um... I'll uh I'll shoot this over to you tonight if you wouldn't mind slapping it together and sending it. I'm editing this. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see about that. I have a full day of camera test tomorrow. Uh, oh wait, I found a three star review from uh, I can't pronounce it. I don't think this is a pseudonym. As Pranovist uh, wrote, was a good listen, good listen, and pretty informative based on the topic. <laughs> That is, he, but he was. <laughs> I've never heard a more like you look up you look up the definition of three star review in the dictionary and it's that review. That is a perfect, <laughs> perfect encapsulation of a qualified review. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like based on the topic, I, it, it, you can sort of feel the. He's, eh, you can you can feel the meh coming out of him right there. Eh, based on the topic, I guess I guess. He wanted a different topic. Uh, he needs to needs to email us and tell us what topic we should be covering. <laughs> All right, my friend. All right, buddy. Shoot me the file. Oh well. And I'll sit on it for a while and I don't know. Consider it. All right. <laughs> I'm the operator of my pocket calculator. I'm the operator.
right top of my pocket calculator. While editing this episode, I discovered that both John Acumfra's 1986 documentary, The Last Angel of History, which briefly discusses the influence of craft work on African-American music, and John Comey's whacked-out Space is the Place, featuring Sun Ra, are both available on YouTube. No subscription to Criterion necessary. The Well is produced, edited, and recorded by Anson Mount and me, Brandon Edgens. Theme music by Jonathan Myberg. Go out and buy his book, A Most Remarkable Creature. It is available March 30th, but you can pre-order it right now from Knopf Publishing. It's available absolutely everywhere fine books are sold. And the crappy version of Led Zeppelin's Bonnaroo Stomp, which you could hear playing under my Harper's reading, was produced and recorded by me. And a special thanks goes to you for taking the time out of your day to listen to The Drop. And if you feel like it, swing by iTunes and leave us a review. We might read it aloud on the air next time. Until then, have a great time all the time. I am adding and subtracting. Pressing down a special key and place a little melody. By pressing down a special key.